Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming alive from my den under the stairs in Adlington, Chorley, in the northwest of England. I'm surrounded by my stuff. My shelves are currently arranged like the Mirabilis Foundation, a private library in the heart of Manhattan, New York City, the central hub for our characters in Masks of Neaflitep campaign. The foundation provided a stable of characters and continuity as the players went through the grinder. Here on my left is my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor, Caroline Monroe. I'll, uh, I'll just get a tap. Ah yes, for this episode, the eternal champion has appeared as Carla from Brian Clemens' classic Hammer film, Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. For this episode, I'm reaching for the Call of Cthulhu Grognard file, down from the great library of RPGs, and revisiting this seminal game. Now we've also had another review on iTunes from that there America. They're always very gratefully received and they give us a sanity boost. This one is from Guardianista. An excellent podcast focusing on the RPGs of the 1980s with a dash of discussion and how it relates to the games of today. Quite sophisticated analysis of these classic games wrapped in the warm, dulcet northern tones of Dirk and Blythe. Do yourself a favour and get listening. Thanks for the review. Sophisticated, my arse. It was about two years ago, this month, that we published episode two of the Grog Pod, which was all about our experiences of playing Call of Cthulhu back in the day. It had such a significant impact on the way we played and how we thought about RPGs in general, that it was the game that brought us back playing together in 2010. A lot has changed for the game over the two years since that episode. The long-trailed publication of the 7th edition rules was fulfilled for its patient backers, and Chaosium developed a new lease of life under new management, and the Cthulhu line has become bolder better illustrated and best-selling. In addition to the new rules and the accompanying scenario packs and supplements, there's been a substantial addition of the Pope Cthulhu variant of the rules. In our own game, we've been playing the old-school classic Fungi from Yugoth, the world-spanning campaign against the Brotherhood that we first played in 1987. We began playing it in September 2015 and we finished in July 2017. In this episode, we're going to review and reflect on these developments of the game since the last episode. To help us do this, we're very pleased to have Mike Mason, the line editor of Call of Cthulhu for KSEM, who was responsible for seeing through the completion of the 7th edition project and the development of the line. He'll be opening the box 
and sharing some of his memories of his formative years in gaming to understand how he developed his interest in horror gaming and Call of Cthulhu in particular. In the next part, he'll be looking in detail at some of the most memorable games and campaigns that he's played in. Also in this part, part one, I will be heading to the bottom of the garden to see Ed in his shed, who was the keeper for the Fungi from Yugoth campaign. We'll look at his scrapbook of handouts and understand his perspective on playing the game. After that, Blythe and I will disrupt our usual Gamesmaster screen format by doing it in the pub. So, sorry about the ambient noise in that section. It, well, it makes you feel like you're actually there. So during the campaign, I noticed a point of difference between me and Blythe. It's always been there, to be honest, but I've not noticed it before. In this podcast, you'll have heard Blythe say, I just want to be Indiana Jones, or I just want to be James Bond. For him, it's about escapism. But more than that, He's driven by a desire to heroically put the world right. Whereas I, I'm happy to shrivel up in a corner and bang my head against a wall in angst and an existential crisis in the face of the awesome terror of the cosmos and our insignificance in the face of the abominable plans of the great old ones. It's been a long relationship. We want different things. But I guess part of the enduring appeal of Call of Cthulhu is that it poses the question, what is it that you actually want from playing these games? At the end, I'll tell you more about part two of the episode and how we'll be looking more closely at the seventh edition. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open Box with Mike Mason. Welcome to Open Box, the section of the podcast where we go back to the past to understand where we are now. This time we're joined by Mike Mason, the line editor for Call of Cthulhu at Chaosium, one of the writers of the new 7th edition and the author of Pulp Cthulhu, the two-fisted action-adventure variant of the rules. Now it's time to find out the gamer beneath the fez. Hello, Mike. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? May I offer congratulations on the Ennies, where KSM and uh, Call of Cthulhu in particular did extremely well. Oh well, thanks very much. It was a uh, it was a splendid um, a splendid evening. Although I wasn't there myself, but my Coliseum uh, colleagues were, were were there in force, and uh, yeah, it was fantastic. Um, it's great to see you know the you know books you've been spending the last uh, you know couple of years or more working on um, you know getting recognised by you know. By the players, because obviously the the Ennis is um, voted for by uh, you know players of the games around the world. So uh, it's it's it's, you know, it's a wonderful uh, wonderful to kind of uh, get a you know get that kind of um, you know recognition and uh, yeah re- yeah amazing really. <laughs> it must be particularly rewarding to you personally to see the results of this long term project. And uh, it shows your tenacity to see the seventh edition and Pulp Cthulhu published. Well, I mean, Pulp, I mean, Pulp Cthulhu started well, you know, probably ten years before I even joined Chaosium, and um, it it was one of those projects that that 
back in the day had been announced that, oh, yeah, we're going to do Pulp Cthulhu, and everyone got very excited. And then it kind of just sort of melted away and died, and uh, no one ever heard of it again. And occasionally you see on a forum somebody uh, posting a comment about, you know, whatever happened to Pulp Cthulhu? When's that coming out? And um, so when I was, uh, when I kind of got involved with Curzium uh, towards the, uh, the tail end of the um, the seventh edition kind of uh, Kickstarter had, had kind of completed, and I joined the company then. Um, one of the one of the discussions and one of the stretch goals in the Kickstarter had been to release Pulp Cthulhu. So um, I, you know, joined the company, and uh, you know, apart from all the other things I was now doing, I, I kind of said, okay, so send me all the pulp files, and I'll, I'll get that edited, and. Uh, we can uh, get that one ready then. Everyone kind of looked at me a bit blank and said, oh, okay, we'll, we'll dig out what we've got. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I think a couple of Word files appeared on my email and uh, it's, uh, it wasn't even, you know, well, maybe there was one full chapter, but uh, the rest were, were, were not really there. So um, I managed to track down uh, James Lauder, a friend of Curzium and, and now, uh, now works for uh, Curzium as our uh, fiction uh, line editor. Uh, but he had, he had been involved in the early days of Pulp Cthulhu, so he knew a little bit more than anyone else about what had actually happened. Using his uh, wonderful network, network uh, managed to kind of track down various people that had been involved, the bits of, the bits of writing they'd done. And I managed to kind of pull that together and kind of review that. Basically, it was a case of that um, some of the material was great, could be, uh, could be, you know, just needed a little bit of an edit and could be used. And then other pieces were, you know, because they'd been written, you know, 10 plus years ago, were, were really out of date in terms of the mechanics or the, the kind of the, the nature and scope of what Pulp Cthulhu, in my mind, you know, meant. So um, stuff by, you know, James Lauder, Jeff Tidball, Wolfgang Bauer was all, you know, it was all great and could, you know, was able to kind of, you know, uh, use that. And obviously that was great because it had a kind of a bit of a foundation. But unfortunately, a lot of the mechanical stuff and the rules, which, which unfortunately, I'm not even sure I got the final version, whatever had been written 10 years ago, because what I got was not really, you know, very pulpy in terms of rules. So um, I kind of had to ditch all of that, unfortunately, and start afresh, which in one sense was um, you know, pain, but equally, it was also a boon because obviously I had a, I had a blank kind of canvas to kind of just get into it and, um, and build, uh, build from the, uh, the 7th edition rules, the kind of pulp rules that I felt would you know, work well within, you know, within the Call of Cthulhu games. So, so yeah, it was, um, it was an interesting process. And, uh, but uh, I was really pleased I was able to kind of use some of the original material in the book. Well, let's try and understand the gamer behind the editor and where that tenacity comes from. We always open the box with this question. How did you start and who did you play with? Well, I, I, it goes way back to, um, I think, I'm terrible with, dates and memory but um, I think it goes back to kind of maybe late 1979 or or, or 1980 around that period and I, I um, you know my knowledge of gaming which I love playing games but my knowledge of gaming was Monopoly and uh, Cluedo uh, and a few card games uh, and um, anything beyond that was was completely alien to me so uh, a good friend of mine uh, had a birthday party and he just said, oh, yeah, I'm having a birthday party. It's not really a party. So just come round and we're going to play a game. And that's all I knew. So I turned up and there's like, you know, six guys sat around the dining room table. 
um, with you know with odd shaped dice. And, um, and what but what took my interest straight away was these cool little miniatures. You know, these like little skeletons and wizards and stuff. And I, that was that looked fantastic. Um, and um, we sat around and, and basically I didn't know it at the time. The name D and D Dungeons Dragons wasn't even mentioned. It was just like you know you're 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 this bloke with a sword. What do you want to do? <laughs> well, I hit the skeleton a lot, please. And um, and we played, you know, played with these little floor plans and, and uh, miniatures for, you know, for a few hours. And we were, you know, not, I mean, I think it was, um, my friend's name was Philip Moore. And his, I think it was his brother, older brother, who was running the game. And we played for, you know, played for a while and really, you know, really getting into it, really enjoying it. And then um, his brother's mate said, oh, I've got to go home for tea. Um, and so he, <laughs> but he owned all the miniatures. So he was, you know, collecting all the miniatures. We were going, oh no, no, we want to carry on playing. So then there was this big, big kind of discussion, almost argument about, oh, you know, come on, you got to leave the miniatures, you know. And, and eventually, I think he he was kind of persuaded to leave some of the miniatures behind, so we could carry on playing for a couple more hours. Um, and uh, and that's really my first experience. But I mean, from that first few hours, I was completely hooked i mean that i was just i thought the miniatures looked fantastic they just really kind of played to my imagination and and um the fact you could just you know wander around dungeons hitting things was, was fantastic so um that that then kind of like you know sat there for a while and i kind of found out the name of the game but where i lived there was no there was no gaming shops it was a kind of like well they they just exist somewhere else you know it was kind of beyond my comprehension of how you could get hold of these things and um and by happy coincidence um my history teacher at the time um mr simmons um he um he was a big gamer and um in lessons he'd like you know get us playing kind of these kind of war games you know greeks fighting whoever and romans and whatnot and um and then one day during his class, I said, "Oh, anyone likes these games? Come back to my, you know, come back after school. I've got some stuff to show you." And so a few of us kind of went back, and he got out all these miniatures. Basically, the weekend before, he'd been to uh, probably been to Nottingham, to be honest, to uh, to uh, Games Workshop or somewhere, and um, picked up a load of uh, miniatures and uh, got them all out on the desk. And we were, you know, I remember there was like a fire giant, the old uh, Citadel fire giant, an ogre, and uh, Stuff like that. We were just all enthralled, and and he said, right, well, I've got these. These are all spares, so I'm, so I'm selling these. And basically, he then started this trade in selling miniatures, and um, and that that quickly kind of rolled into him starting a gaming club on a Thursday night, and um, and that's really how I guess I got to kind of learn about, you know, the different kind of role playing things and where you could get them from, and so that that then led to me kind of badgering my dad to drive me to to Leicester to, uh, to a shop uh, called Rider Design, which um, at the time sold lots of, you know, role-playing stuff and also had this little cabinet of uh, strange kind of um, jewellery, which, of course, over the years, they, they the jewellery took off for them. They started selling more jewellery and stopped selling role-playing games. <laughs> but, um, but, um, but, yeah, so um, that's really my starting point. I just hooked through uh, friends, I guess, and a... And a gaming teacher. So, how soon did you start games mastering? Um, pretty soon, because I think it inevitably um, there was 
there is a there is a couple of there, there is uh, Mr. Simmons. He he GM occasionally, but of course, as more people came to the club, uh, there was far too many players. And I remember there was a couple of other guys. Uh, I think in the year above me who would you know run things. Um, and then it kind of just came down to well, I had the stuff, and it's kind of like well, I think I could do this, and so I started, you know, running things. I think um, you know running. Is it B two the sh- the Palace of the Silver Princess? Oh, I don't I know. Think. Keep on the Borderlands. If that that one that I think that was the first thing I ran, and I think I ran that to death. I think I, that's I think that was the only scenario I actually owned. So every group, I, every group I, you know, any time I played, I was running that basically, or I was playing myself. So um, yeah, so so uh, yeah, so I got pretty quickly into kind of running D and D, and that's all. Also, it also got me into trouble because I got um, I left I left that school and went. Oh no no no! It was at that school actually. And it was it was like a year later, and I was um, I was quite committed then to kind of gaming. I don't know where the passion comes from, but I um, I actually designed some posters to advertise the the role playing club, and um, and one of them got me into hot water because um, I had I had a call to go and visit the uh, the deputy head teacher, and um, and then they produced one of my posters saying uh, that uh, yeah, had I designed this and, and uh, you know did you realise that, that, that it was scaring people and, and I kind of looked a bit incredulously at it because basically it was a really badly drawn Dalek saying come to the role playing club or you will be exterminated <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I managed to kind of get out of that one more or less by uh, uh, my uh, luck and charm and um, <laughs> and I left the promotion to to everyone else from that point. But uh, yeah, <laughs> a career in marketing beckoned. Indeed, yes, it's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> One of the themes we've had on the podcast is about um, the desire and difficulties of trying to find people to play with, and how how tricky it was in those early days. It sounds like you never really had that problem. You've always managed to find people to play with. Yeah, it's it's weird. Um, when I started off, it was it was very much a you know a, it was very much a club thing, and so there was it was at that kind of really early days of role playing that it was really you know starting to kind of creep out into some you know like sci-fi modelling magazines and things like that, and so there was a kind of a bit of a buzz about it. You know, it was this unknown quantity, and there's a you know, and so it captured the imagination of a lot of you know certainly a lot of boys at the school, um, and. Um, and so there, were, there always seemed to be, you know, a group of people, and obviously there was, there were a few that I t- tended to play more regularly with. And in fact, um, you know, we did kind of, um, whilst the club was going on, it kind of we had a splinter group that kind of met around a friend's house. I used to play in the, rug- the school rugby team, and uh, a couple of a couple of the guys in that also did role playing. And so we'd end up uh, having to get up early on a Saturday morning greasing ourselves with Vaseline against the cold on some awful rugby pitch in the middle of nowhere, playing some team. Uh, and then um, and then we'd all meet back around my mate's house in the afternoon where his older brother would run us through a game. And so uh, that kind of, uh, you know, went on for a little while as well. Um, so I, I always kind of had people. I mean, it's when I, um, I moved, I moved uh, my family moved, and we moved to a new, uh, a new place. Um, and... Um, and I was quite worried, thinking, oh, I don't know anyone, and let alone not knowing anyone, I'm not going to, you know, what am I going to do gaming-wise? Because I was well into it, as you can imagine. 
and um and I don't know, fates were just really kind to me because the first day I, I you know, went to the new school, um, I was kind of paired up with this, you know, this other guy in the, in the tutor group, and um, and so, I don't know, how we, I don't know, maybe, I don't, maybe it was me. I just kind of mentioned, oh, has anyone played D and D here? And uh, he said, yeah, I do. And so it was like, you know, I instantly found a new group, as it were. Um, so I was, I think, I was just very lucky. I'll uh, just make a note of that. Mike Mason smears himself with Vaseline before role playing. <laughs> I think I might have, might have had a shower between the two, but I can't 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 say with certainty. So tell us about your first encounter with Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, I'd um, yeah I'd moved school, and um, and I kind of there was a guy at school called Winnie Dave Winfield, who I'd kind of. I knew a little bit. Uh, I didn't really have any lessons with him, but he's one of those guys who kind of knew everyone. He's a really friendly guy, um, and um, and he, you know, he games. So um, we kind of, I think we must have obviously, you know, gamed a few times at school or whatever. And and, uh, and then one day in the in the uh, in the playground, he kind of gets out. He's like, "Oh, you've seen these?" And he got out these, you know, this. Um, I think it was the Asylum and other tales and something else. Um, Call of Cthulhu wise, and uh, I was like, "Oh, that looks great!" Because the artwork was um, Tom Sullivan artwork on the cover, and um, I was, "Oh, these look amazing!" Because I mean, my experience of role playing had been D and D and uh, some RuneQuest at that time, and, and I knew about Traveller, but I hadn't really played it. Um, so this kind of horror game was like, "Wow!" You know, because I, I was. Before I got into Call of Cthulhu, I was I've always been into been into horror and reading you know horror books and watching horror films, and so this kind of like you know just really kind of rang a bell. Um, but again, uh, because I didn't live nowhere near a gaming shop and had to rely on me dad, you know when when he, when he felt uh, you know he uh, when he had time and felt he, uh, able he you know to badger him to drive me to a role playing shop and then getting him to spend some money for me. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I had no way of really accessing stuff. So, um, but I think Imagine Magazine was out by then, and uh, they did that Call of Cthulhu special. Um, and um, I remember it had a story by Brian Lumley in it, The Mirror of Nitocris. Um, and um, and that kind of gave you a real intro into you know what the game was and and the, you know what it was all about. And um, and so I read that kind of cover to cover at least three times, going like, oh, this, is, this is definitely what I want to get. And um, I think Games Workshop uh, had obviously just put out their, you know, their, you know, reprint or, uh, you know, production of the, uh, the Call of Cthulhu box set. And so I managed to badger me dad to, uh, to get that. Um, and, um, and that kind of went from there really. And, and then I ended up, uh, I think, I ended up being invited around uh, Winnie's house to play Call of Cthulhu, and um, and we never stopped really. <laughs> and uh, he's still still one of my best friends today, and uh, still play uh, still play together. And uh, um, yeah, it all kind of stemmed from his old school bag, to be honest. <laughs> so Call of Cthulhu game came first. Were you aware of H.P. Lovecraft before he began playing? No, I see. I, no, I don't think I was. Um, I'd read plenty of kind of horror anthologies, you know, the old Herbert Van Fowl, um, yeah, horror horror uh, collections, and, and plenty of other things. 
So I think I must have read at least one Lovecraft story, uh, you know, at some point from the many you know anthologies I'd written, I'd, I'd read. I mean, um, but I hadn't really, like many other authors in those anthologies, I hadn't really taken a note of who'd written them. I just kind of enjoyed the stories. Um, so it wasn't really until the game came out that I kind of, oh, this Lovecraft chap. And of course, as soon as you start playing Call of Cthulhu, it was certainly back in the day, it was like, well, who is he? And you start, you know, me and me and me and Dave, in fact, would you know haunt every secondhand bookshop we could find, tracking down, you know, not only Lovecraft but you know Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, all these other kind of writers in the uh, you know what was the Lovecraft circle of the day. Um, and tracking them down and buying, you know, buying as many second-hand books as we could, you know, and dreaming about these fabled things, you know, from Arkham House that, you know, you just wouldn't get in England unless you were very lucky. Um, and, um, you know, kind of, we had this side hobby, suddenly sort of book collecting, you know, collecting as much as we could. Um, uh, fortunately, um, the Panther paperbacks of the Lovecraft Collections were just kind of come out then as well. So we were actually able to walk into his shop and buy, you know, effectively collected Lovecraft stories, which, um, you know, maybe a year or two before we you know, wouldn't have been Ah, there. yes, it was um, Grafton, wasn't it? He brought a, a series right. of books around that that's, time. That's exactly Distinctive it. Yes, covers. Yes. So uh, I remember uh, completely devouring one of those while the London Marathon was on TV one Sunday, wet Sunday, I think. That's... <laughs> These books are great, Mum. Ignore the monster eating a half-naked woman. There's nothing to worry about. <laughs> yeah, it seems to me that in that time, horror and transgressive stuff seemed to be more available. Even in the kids' section of uh, the bookshop, there was like the Beaver Book of Horror, and the Usborne Monster Books, and the horror films from the 30s and 40s were on in the early evening much more than today. Yeah, there is a definite kind of um, grim vibe to the 70s. Uh, and, um, yeah, absolutely. You, you know, you, I remember re- you know, being really young and watching uh, Leonard Nimoy's uh, In Search Of um, series and that kind of stuff. But, uh, but, yeah, you'd walk into a bookshop and, you know, even, you know, they weren't children's books, but, you know, you would see all the uh, James Herbert books, The Rats and The Dark and... Um, then Sean Hudson, Slugs and all that kind of stuff, uh, and Stephen King and, and whatnot. And they were, you know, they were big sellers in the, in the day, and so they had a lot of shelf space. So it was um, <clears throat> hard not to uh, avoid, you know, to avoid them, to be honest. Uh, our school, James Herbert books, acted like a kind of contraband currency passing around the playground. Oh, well, yeah, because, I mean, the rats would, somebody would turn up with the rats going like, oh, have you you've got to read this. And it would just like okay, go from person to person, and uh, yeah, and uh, always falling open at the same pages. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, but yeah, you don't. I, I mean, I yeah, I can't say there's a real analogy to uh, to that in the in the modern day. I guess in the uh, in the kind of mid eighties, it kind of turned to videos where you know people would uh, pass around a hey, here's a copy of the Evil Dead. Have you seen this? And uh, uh, but nowadays, it's uh, well. Who knows what people are accessing online? <laughs> Maybe it's all happening, but uh, you know, it's far more uh, subvert, you know, subverted than uh, than than in our day with a few paperbacks and the odd video. So, well, as a parent, 
<laughs> nowadays, finding out that your child's been reading the mucky bits in rats would be the least of your worries. <laughs> exactly, yes, yeah. You're quite relieved, to be honest, yeah. <laughs> so does your love of horror explain how Call of Cthulhu came to predominate your role-playing? Um... I think it just naturally progressed into the into this into this kind of group that um, my friend Winnie had set up because um, our, we me and Dave didn't really GM that group. We had um, another friend's um, well would become his brother-in-law, uh, he, a, a chap called Gary Hall. He 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 was going out with uh, another another Dave uh, friend, uh, his sister. And his sister and Gary would also play in the group. And Gary was um, an older chap, and uh, he uh, he basically just would run stuff for us, and we'd just turn up and play. And and um, and then he'd, he'd turn up with like a, a really, you know, looking at it now, a really early copy of Dagon magazine, and um, and I'd go, "Oh, what's that?" And I, you know, copy down the address, uh, you know, Carl Ford, etc., Twickenham. And uh, and uh, oh, it's fifty p or whatever it is, and so it's send a stamped address envelope. So I, you know, the day after I'd be sending fifty p off to Carl Ford, and getting into Dagon, and then getting a subscription. So it kind of you know kind of steamrolled from there really, and um, um, you know, and and Call of Duty, you know, just became I guess my main game. But I mean, I still played other things. I still played RuneQuest. I still played a bit of D and D, um, and you know, like any of the gamer you know something new and shiny would come out and i'd oh, get that and um you know maybe read it maybe give it a play once or twice and then forget about it and you know go back to cthulhu um so it just became the kind of default game we all we all really loved it we all just enjoyed that kind of investigation and horror and um i guess you know partly we, we were all a bit dnd played out we'd all you know hacked enough dragons uh, over the years preceding years that we wanted something a bit more. We wanted a bit more engagement and uh, the kind of sense of getting involved in a, in a kind of conspiracy mystery um, was just more enticing for us, I think. Um, it just really held and captured our imagination. Um, so it kind of, yeah, just kind of you know, grew from there, really. So you mentioned Dagon, fanzine that we talked about in episode 14. And you were a regular correspondent. You'd put uh, H.P. Lovecraft himself yeah, to shame. I, I haven't I haven't seen them in years, and I and <laughs> I I think uh, I was very young. I'm just going to say I was very young, and uh, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about mainly. But uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I was always surprised. I'd get a, the new copy come in the post, and uh, finally get to the letters page. And you're like, oh bloody hell! They've you know they've uh, <laughs> put my letter in again. I was I, I mean thinking about now, thinking like. Uh, Mr. Ford must have been pretty desperate because uh, <laughs> to, to fill space, I don't know, but uh, to print my stuff. But um, but yes, no, Dagon was um, was really central, I think, in that sense because it really kind of, whilst you know we were enjoying the game and, and new stuff would come out, what Dagon added was a sense of community that there was a there was a wide. It wasn't just us playing this game; that there was a wider community of people that were really into this game as well. And um, and so it became that kind of um, gateway into the community, and also the gateway into into the wider kind of literary world around the game. Because obviously, of, of all role playing games, whilst many of them are kind of um, informed or um, 
you know, steeped in some kind of literary kind of background, you know, whether it's Tolkien or whoever, um, Call of Cthulhu one was really very proudly a kind of a literary game. It was like, you know, you, I think it even said at the time, you know, you, if you want to play this game, we really recommend you go and read all these stories, which I don't think any other game really had said at the time. And um, so it really kind of said, you know, signposted you to go and read Lovecraft. And once you started reading Lovecraft and kind of understanding that, and, and then backed up by what was going on in Dagon, um, you were reading these other writers, and Dagon, what it, what it did splendidly was introduce you to modern and contemporary writers that, that you were kind of like, I'm aware of those, but I've never read them. So, you know, people like Carl Edward Wagner and uh, Thomas Ligotti and all these people that you necessarily wouldn't necessarily, you know, know about, um, suddenly really widened your horizons. And obviously that all then became this kind of feedback loop that you're reading all these really kind of off the wall and really cool ideas and, and great horror stories by these new writers and then feeding them all their ideas and snicking their ideas basically to put in your games as, as you, you know, and um, it became this wonderful, as I say, kind of feedback loop on itself. So uh, yeah, there you go. Oh, thanks to at Daily Dwarf. I have some of the letters that you wrote to the zine. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Well, many of your letters were about the authors that appeared in uh, Dagon. But this one I like in particular a lot because it gives a hint of who you would become. So I'm going to read it. So, with regard to the review of Call of Cthulhu 3rd Edition Rulebook, it seems that Chaosium and Games Workshop have spent about five minutes putting it together. The only thing that makes the book worth having is the excellent colour prints and some of the monster pictures although some of them are a bit dodgy <laughs> oh fantastic uh, how true i still I think, I think i still stand by that <laughs> i think the uh, the um what this is, we're talking about the um games workshop hardback call of Cthulhu edition which i believe uh, which i know some people really hold up as their favorite edition which i you know well, many people who Listen to this podcast. Love that edition. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, I think it is a good edition. But I mean, if you look at it, you know, plainly, it is just the two Kersium, um books put in side by side into a hardback. And my point was, it would have uh, it would have been better to kind of restructure them together. They would fit better uh, rather than being effectively two separate books in one in in a hardback, because um, because both of those little books uh, you had the main rule book with some of the occupations in but the but the other supplementary book that you got in the original box um also had some professions in so my point of view was well why don't you just put all the professions together in one place not in two completely separate places in the book i just didn't it didn't make any logical sense to me and um and that was really my point but i still stand by the color plates being very excellent <laughs> Well, clearly it shows that you had the essential skills for games publishing. Has it always been your career? Uh, no, no. I. Um, it's funny. It's funny when you when we were talking about the Dalek post and you said marketing, because actually that's what I went on to do. As I act, I actually went into kind of promotions and marketing. Um, I kind of uh, went to university and um, and didn't. Oh, I went to university and did a drama degree, which is either neither here nor there, but. Uh, I left university and obviously with a drama degree, I had people falling over themselves to give me a job. Uh, well, not really. 
And, and um, so I kind of, um, I guess because I could reasonably communicate okay, um, I, um, I got a job in this uh, uh, marketing kind of department. And I worked in marketing for like 20, 20 plus years. Um, so I think it's there that I kind of really developed my kind of writing and editing skills because I was writing, you know, press copy and uh, marketing copy. Um, and then, you know, when I kind of moved into kind of managing marketing teams, I was editing other people's copy. Um, and so it was around about that time that I, uh, Dagan had long since died the unspeakable oath had been out, but then had kind of died too. And there was a, this real kind of vacuum in the kind of um, Call of Cthulhu community. And uh, I was waiting for someone to fill it and nobody did. So I was like, oh, well, sorry, I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll put out a little fanzine. And um, so I put together The Whisperer, um, which was, you know, just my attempt to kind of fill that vacuum and just have something out there that was, you know, about Call of Cthulhu and, you know, Lovecraftiana in general. Um, and, um, and that was really, I guess, my first forays into actually producing game material in some sense. Um, and uh, I did about an issue a year for about five years and um, understood how, how much time, time it actually took to do. Um, and finally, I just couldn't kind of sustain the amount of time it took again, you know, not against the day job and also having a young family. Um, uh, but it kind of opened the doors for me, I guess, in a way, because it, it gave me that kind of direct experience in terms of, um, you know, game uh, texts and whatnot. And that led me to doing a bit of freelance work, kind of editing for Curtium. Um, also, you know, I'd written a few scenarios and... Um, I think one ended up in Valkyrie magazine. Um, and it was also in tandem with doing The Whisperer, I'd also started The Cult of Keepers in the UK, which was um, basically a, a bunch of Call of Cthulhu keepers who um, would get together at different conventions um, and basically just run Call of Cthulhu. And we kind of would do that and maybe kind of have this kind of loose tournament uh, to kind of give it a bit of a shape. Um, and, um, so I, I started to meet a lot of other, you know, Call of Cthulhu players and, and, you know, met some keepers who would then go on to become, you know, writers alongside myself, people like Paul Fricker, um, Scott Dorwood, for instance. And, um, uh, so that was that, you know, from those kind of beginnings of, you know, actively writing scenarios for conventions, running them at conventions, meeting other people, um, producing this fanzine kind of really kind of congealed all this kind of Lovecraftiana together for me. Uh, but it was always a kind of a hobby. It was always a hobby. Um, and um, uh, although I did a bit of freelance, it was only, you know, once in a blue moon. Um, and um, But what it also opened the door to was um, I would be going to conventions where I would be meeting the people who actually worked at Curzium, so people, um, uh, uh, you know, probably more, you know, Charlie Crank, who would come over to um, certain conventions in the UK or Germany, which uh, I'd go to. So I kind of got to know him and some of the other people at Curzium. Um, and so that kind of allowed, I guess, allowed me and Paul to one day turn around to him and say, like, you know, are you, 
do you have plans to do a new edition? It's been you know, over 10 years since the last one. We think it's a little creaky. We think we could make a few improvements. And um, is that something you'd be interested in? He said, yes, definitely. I, you know, I really want to do a new edition. Um, I'd be you know, more than happy for you guys to, uh, to take a stab at it. Um, and, um, and we said, okay, well, we'll go away and we'll see what we can do. And so we went away for four years um, and developed what would become 7th edition and, and then sort of turned up back with it and um, uh, and they kind of and then went from there really you know though Charlie was happy with it and um, was um, you know we uh, we said well you know we're not entirely sure there's a few quite radical things in here we're not really sure about um, we want to play test it extensively and so we you know it was me and Paul who actually operated the uh, the kind of the big play test the public play test we did for seventh edition and um, had people from all around the world, you know, uh, getting hold of the playtest set and sending in copious amounts of feedback, um, which helped really to help to inform us on uh, how uh, you know what was good, what was what we shouldn't do, and uh, what was kind of like borderline. You know, there were certain rules that we knew some people loved and some people hated. Uh, things like um, spending luck in the game, and um, and when we kind of did our kind of survey of responses. On those kind of questions it just came back 50 50 and so it's kind of like well you know what let's make that an optional rule then let's just put it in the book as an optional rule because clearly some people really like the rule and want to use it other people don't like it so you know so that the whole play testing really kind of um, really helped to kind of cement how the book would uh, would uh, would become um, but yeah I mean yeah it's a kind of uh, uh, fairly direct road, I guess, in one sense, from playing Call of Cthulhu into kind of, you know, becoming line editor in, in terms of my story. But um, it was a fairly convoluted route to get there. And it was, and it wasn't ever my intention, if you see what I mean. It was it was a hobby, you know, like everyone else, it's a hobby. Um, and I started to just write a bit, but I'd never kind of, you know, I always knew from, you know, listening to other, you know, writers that, um, you know, it's very hard to make a you know career out of um, out of writing for role playing games. Certainly, very hard to to make a, a meaningful income. So I'd never even countenanced the idea that that would be a possibility. Um, you know, and just relied on the day job. And this is what I did. You know, when I had a bit of spare time. Um, so um, when um, when Kazim actually turned around and said, "Well, you know." we need a line editor and, you know, we'd like you to consider it. Um, I kind of like, oh, it's kind of like the back of my mind was like, fantastic. Yeah. Yes. is Yes. Is the answer. But equally it was like, well, can I, can I afford to do this? I don't know if I can, you know, I don't know if you're even going to, if you're even going to pay me, if it's just a kind of a, you know, a nominal thing. Um, but happily, uh, happily it kind of worked out that I could, I could afford to, um, to kind of pack in, Back in the day job and, and actually go full time as you know working for Gersion, which is um, I guess a, a dream come true to some degree. On the next part of this episode, we're going to look at the seventh edition in more detail. As you know, our constituency of listeners is mainly old time gamers who don't like change very much, or people who have come back into the hobby after hiatus. 
Why should they get the new edition rather than sticking with the familiar editions uh, with its dodgy monsters? <laughs> well, I mean, there's nothing to stop them doing that. I mean, you know, if they, you know, if that's what, if that's what's warm and cuddly and familiar, then then fine, you know, great. At the end of the day, if they're playing Call of Cthulhu, you know, I'm happy. But um, I think picking up the new book, I think. Um, in one sense, it's 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 a genuine evolution and refinement of the Call of Cthulhu system. It's still the same system. It's still the same rules. However, there are some refinements and tweaks that kind of, you know, well, I you know I have to say I feel that they improve the gameplay. They streamline certain things. They um, correct certain ambiguities that existed in the rules, such as grappling. Um, <laughs> ask any group of you know sixth edition and before call of cthulhu keepers to tell me what the grappling rule is and how it works i don't think i get the same answer from any of them uh, and certainly there used to be forums filled with like you know how does grappling work and nobody could give a straight answer they all had an opinion but they clearly was the clearly the rule was unclear um so you know to refine you know rules like that in the new edition hopefully helps the game because you don't have this ambiguity and you don't have to kind of like make up a rule on the spot necessarily to, you know, hope that it's going to work. Um, so it is a refinement of the rules. It's also the first um, the first edition in full colour with, you know, lots of, you know, full colour, gorgeous art throughout of it. So it, as an artefact, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderfully beautiful thing. Um, and, and, of course, the other thing is, if you're getting back into the game, why wouldn't you pick up the latest edition? You know, if you were getting into D&D now, having played it back in 1984, um, I think it's natural you would go and pick up the new edition because you'd want to see where the game, had, you know, what the game was now, where it had gone to. And I think that's no different to you know, Call of Cthulhu and, and, and then any other system. Um, you, know, we, you know, you tend to you know, go and get the latest thing and, and then... Um, and then you know use that as you will. Um, and I can the other thing with, with seventh edition is that you know we kind of wrote it as a toolkit. We wrote it because the game is you know thirty five plus years old, and we know because we do it ourselves that people play the game in different ways, and people always have created house rules over the years to fill in gaps and all that kind of thing. And Call of Cthulhu still remains no different, and that's why throughout all of the rules chapters in the book. At the end of every other, every one of those chapters is a series of optional rules uh, that allows you to further tweak the game to the style that you and your group prefer. So I think that kind of 35 years of informed gameplay and experience is what is kind of culminated into the the latest the latest edition of the game. So I think you know, well, why wouldn't you want all of that? Because it's not just our experience and, and our opinions in that book. It is informed by. Hundreds of people around the world playtesting it, and and um, other writers we know who who input it into the process in terms of you know uh, shaping our ideas and experiences. So I think, um, well, why wouldn't you want to pick it up? To be honest, uh, it's, it's the uh, the fairest answer I can give. I think. What always strikes me about you, Mike, uh, when I listen to you in interviews or on panels, you're very passionate about the game and particularly about its adaptability and ability to accommodate many different styles of horror gaming. Yeah, I, I still, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think, um, 
I think why Call of Cthulhu is still around and why it is, you know, the most popular kind of game of its style um, is because um, it is, in one sense, it is tailored to, you know, the nature of investigation and and uh, and horror gaming, um, it, you know, with a, with a kind of a Lovecraftian kind of sensibility. Um, but it is generic enough that you can you can play it in whatever style or means you want to play. If you don't want to, if you don't like the kind of Lovecraftian Cthulhu mythos, you can just play it as a straight kind of hammer horror game. Um, uh, you can you can play it, you know, very grim, dark and gritty uh, and slow moving investigation. You can play it as a horror film where it, it's very action orientated um, or, or very you know immediate. With hardly any investigation, it becomes a survival horror game, and I think it can be all these things and all points in between. And I think the system is flexible and um, and easier. And also, I think the system is really intuitive. The whole percentile play system is when you you have a bunch of people around the table who have never role played before. You can show them Call of Cthulhu, and you can say, "Well, you've got seventy um, percent in shooting this handgun." And they immediately understand what that means because they understand that 70% is pretty good. So I'm pretty good at shooting handgun. Yes, you are. Whereas you've got only got 5% in uh, reading French. And it's like, well, okay, and I understand that. You haven't got to explain what, you know, I've got French at 16. Well, what's 16 mean? Whereas percentage is very intuitive. So I, I always find Call of Cthulhu is a great game for introducing new people into gaming, to be honest, because... Because it just it just fits because they haven't got to imagine a fantasy land and, and try and comprehend what that means or you know what 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 is a barbarian in Tolkien mean or a hobbit they they, they can understand what a librarian is or a detective is or a, uh, you know a doctor is they they immediately understand the character so you you're suddenly getting over these hurdles that you may have with other games so I find it um, as I always call it I think it is a gateway game I think people. Um, do enter, you know, the gaming community through games like Call of Cthulhu. It's not the only one, obviously, but but um, I think it is a very accessible game in that way. I agree. The new rules do feel more inclusive as well as intuitive. Well, Mike, until next time when you face the Keeper's screen, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Dirk. It's been a pleasure. It's brand new shed. Ooh, fancy. Okay, I'm not being down here for a while, going down this this path to the bottom of the garden. Oh, what's this? A new metal eldritch shed. He's gone up in the world. Uh, I'll just give it a knock. Come in. Hello there, Ed. Hello there, Dirk. What's that, what's that in the jar there? Is that your brain? That's my brain, yeah. <laughs> Talking you through a mouthpiece with wires attached to it. Right. That's like a gherkin. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you've got a gherkin in a jar, uh, you're in a metal shed, it can only mean one thing. We've come to talk about fungi from yogurt. Okay. Fungi? Fungi. Fungi, fungi, fungi. <laughs> Don't start with that. Fungi <laughs> Fungi's not even Lovecraftian. <laughs> not even started yet, have we? Me go, my go. Me go, right. go. So, let's just um, remind. Uh, listeners, the history of this supplement, so where it came from, and uh, the background to it, because we talked about it, didn't we, way back uh, when we mm. did the original episode. Yeah, well, the fungi from yogurt came out in uh, 1984, and I think uh, I must have bought it around 85, I think 86, uh, 
and uh, it was after I'd got Mass and Athlete because I bought that first, mm. and there was it was a cracking massive campaign, but it was almost too big to comprehend. So yeah. I went back and picked up Fungi from Yugoth, which seemed more manageable. Now uh, that was the first one in '84, and there was I think another one. In 1990, was it? There's Curse of Cthulhu, released in 1990. According to the inside of The Day of the Beast, which is the third iteration of the uh, fungi from Yugoth, uh, just with a different name. Uh, again, The Curse of Cthulhu is exactly the same yeah. as uh, fungi from Yugoth, the exact same print and everything, typeface and font and pictures. I think it's just got a few extra scenarios in it that have nothing to do with the actual fungi from Yugoth. And we actually played it, didn't we, back in the day, fungi mm. from Yugoth. What do you remember of playing it back then? Uh, well, as you know, my mind's been wiped. And <laughs> I have very that, few, that true, few memories of it. There's a couple of bits when I was reading through it again that started to come through, namely the kind of second scenario. It was the, the thing in the well, which was that one we yeah. were in Boston, that old house, and there was a... That's a really good uh, Which scenario. Is like a creepy, it's kind of a creepy in a way. There's an old woman in the house and there's this uh, son. I don't want to spoil it. Can no, I no. spoil it or what? No. <laughs> we can get... Oh, the we title, spot, we, the, the clue's in the title, which is why I didn't say we're going to run the thing in the well before we actually yeah, yeah. We, we play it. Because otherwise we just said, right, let's we'll have a look what's well. in the well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and then uh, they released it as Day of the Beast and they tacked on even three or four more scenarios which is supposed to have made it into one larger campaign but the extra scenarios are not not really to do with it just no just kind of touch on it at the beginning the bit i remember when we played it back in the day was the um peru section and i remember the mine and uh i'm surprised though when we played it not much else came back um, and you played it the second time yeah played it the second time not much back. i think maybe we've all been yeah, well, that's it. I don't remember getting to Peru. I I think when we talked about it a few years ago, I think I remember getting up to Peru but not running it. I think yeah. I did. It was Egypt before the Peru, so we got to that, and then I thought we stopped there. But you may be right. You have better memory than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, running it this time, how have you found uh, being the keeper? I think the big difference is is the time. I mean, I first read this two years ago. On holiday three times, yeah. and then we play we play it once a month, and uh, for with, with, two breaks. Three, with breaks, with breaks, so, yeah. so once a month, two or three times, and then we have a break for three or four months, maybe maybe six months. Yeah. So you have a lot of time to read it again and read it again and read it again and prepare, get stuff. So you know, I have a lot more time to think. Whereas before, in in the day, we probably ran it all within a week. Yeah, buy it, buy, it, buy it on a Saturday. I read it once, and I read the first chapter again, and then underlined bits in pencil, and we're running it Sunday afternoon. So how does that make it different? I just think it gives you time to read between the lines a bit. You can pick bits out. You can add stuff to it. Uh, I mean, it's it's quite a slim campaign, really, but it does lead itself to a lot of expansion if you want to. Yes. Which I prefer that than the opposite. I prefer that than bloated and you try to think, oh, I'll cut that out, or I'll take that away, or it just it asks to be to be expanded a little bit, or swapped around, or changed. So, what was the best bit for you as a keeper running, running it now? Yeah, uh, there was quite a few. I like the thing in the well. 
Yeah. I think that which was the second one. I think. Yeah, that was really good because it felt like almost like a one shot, didn't it? It it felt like a, a an isolated yeah, story within the campaign. You got the initial introduction, which was a little bit vague, and you'd rescued the guy from the hospital, which is a, a quite a good scenario. But the other was like more of a creepy haunted house yeah. kind of thing. Oh, that's how I perceived it. Yeah. Uh, whether it actually ran like that, but there was again an example of where you add stuff to. There was a bit where you explored the, the tomb at the beginning. There's some girls that opened a yeah, tomb. Now, that's yeah. not in Fungi yeah. for me. It mentions it. Yeah. But it's not there. It's, so I made that up. I added a little bit and a few newspaper reports to, to take you to that. Yes. Because I knew it wasn't enough for an evening. Yeah. It was, it's only about two hours worth, so I thought I'll need another hour here. So I thought I'd put, it a, I'd put a tomb exploration in it. And yeah. I think it worked. It, it, I mean, it expanded to it well. I think it uh, yeah. added to it from my point of view anyway. Yeah. What did what were the biggest challenges? So what were the bits that, um, looking back on it, you didn't enjoy as much? Uh, I always find the more open ended ones, ones with lots of characters. This is me personally, lots of characters, where you've got a kind of there's, there's not a lot of plot, but there's a lot of talky talk, a lot of different people, a little bit of, and I always find that hard. Yeah. Because you kind of kind of. But there's not there's not an awful lot of that in here, is there? No, it's it's a it's a traditional it, old school. Yeah, you can see the, the uh, I don't know the dungeon elements. In yes. This yeah. Because it is, is that it is old school because it's more about adventure, isn't it, than yeah. investigation and mystery. Yeah. It kind of plays second yeah. fiddle to it's, it, doesn't it's, it? It's it's very Indiana Jones if you want it to be like that because it's like underground passageways and these uh, catacombs and these uh, you know caves up in the mountains and these things like that and you know. There's lo- thrilling locations like that that could take you to that. And again, I find that is is great. You know, to do the, like I said, the challenge for me was a bit where you uh, have a lot of characters. Yeah. You could like the first scenario is a bit like that where you've got several people yeah. you can go. You know, there's a gangster, there's the doctor at the hospital, there's several other things that you can kind of just spend half an hour just chatting to them. Yeah. Some people like that. I personally. But I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that first one because that was the one that really had the sense of uh, mystery that needed to be mm. resolved. What I think happened as the campaign went on, it was more about finding where we needed to get to next. Yeah, it's a it's a paper trail, really. Yeah, uh, and there's only one place to go at the end of it. Whereas the difference with, I'd say, Bassanayatla, they got to a location. The locations were bigger. Yeah, there's several avenues to go in these locations in. Uh, fungi there's only one place to go find the clue you go to the next place yeah it's just like a paper trail you find your piece of evidence and then you're off to your next one so as part of that paper trail what you introduced to this uh, campaign for the first time <laughs> was a scrapbook that we had to put in uh, the play handouts and you spent a lot of time on the handouts so just talk us through um, what you did with that well it seems to be but i think initially the idea was just to stick the handouts that you get them because you end up just clipping them to your character sheet they get lost yeah. and you lose it so I think for any Call of Cthulhu scenario just get a scrapbook or a bit of paper that someone can stick the handouts to and it, they can read them the next session that they get to and follow it on from there so but what amazing handouts because a lot for every NPC that we encountered you had a photograph mugshot well yeah I think I'd 
Time on your hands, uh, come back too to Too much you. time on your hands. I'm working in a repro graphics department. You can kind of do these things relatively legitimately. <laughs> relatively. So, you, so you, it's so easy to just type in 1930s uh, actors or yeah. 1930s portraits. Or, and you just get tons of pictures of people, whether they're famous or not, or whether they're criminals or whether they... You don't know who they are. I think yeah, they're yeah. mass murderers. Well, well, I think I think Ernest Hemingway turned he up. He did pop up, yeah, and I didn't notice that at first, but then <laughs> I thought, I do know that face, but never mind, I'll, I'll use it. <laughs> and there's a mate... Whether I struck lucky, there was some that seemed just perfect for the... Well, there he is, Ernest Hemingway. Like, I don't know who he is with the hat on, but he was Uncle Victor in Peru, but he just looked like an Uncle yeah, Victor, he did. didn't yeah, he? Yeah. That's just a fluke. You know, Professor Galloway, that's just a fluke coming in. You look at him there, well, that's almost like him there, isn't it? On the cover, yeah. On the cover it, of the thing. Yeah, it That's is. just, I don't know, just and, look. And as we, we said um, when we talked about it, that a lot of the mystery is in the handouts, isn't it? So that mm. paper trail, yeah. uh, it, it, it's in there, and the kind of yeah. conspiracy that's happening in the yeah, background yeah. is found in the letters. And the letters were great as well. So how did you do those? Well, some actually was from a site called Cth- is it Cthulhu Reborn, which right. have, have got the fungi from Yugoth uh, handouts as PDFs, which anybody can download. So I just picked up them. And some were brilliant ones. You know, some had been, uh, you know, that one, the Baron Hawkman letter, the yeah. letterheads and everything. Because one of the, the downsides of the fungi from Yugoth, all the handouts are very, very plain. Yeah. They're very, very uh, just standard type on a page and then the square that you cut out and you hand them out, which is how it was back in the day. You, you wouldn't have thought of giving a letter or a, a fo- folded up and actually looking like a proper letter uh-huh. uh, back then. I mean, these have come on in the last 30 years, so there is stuff available for anybody to, to use. Uh, and some stuff I've added myself. I mean, what's the other thing? A bill, you know, the Woods Estate Rest Home, I typed that up, used something... That I picked up online and invoice services and just edited it, just uh, brushed bits out and put a new t- title on. So that's just a clue because in some parts of the campaign they don't really give you a clue to get to the next one. So I like to reinforce that. One one of the good things that you did as well is bet- after because as you said there was a gap between us playing uh, sometimes. Mm. You did like a news report. Uh, to say what had happened last that's time. That's right, yeah, I think some accident in a tomb or something, which yeah. was obviously made up by the press to kind of, or a cover story from one of the rich, I think it was one of your characters, a debutante, was it? Yeah, yeah. Who got, was she crushed in this thing it's, by a big crocodile monster? Well, I think she got her head ripped off, yeah, oh. yeah by uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> a shantar. I thought it was the news report this, I thought, oh, they'll just have it as an accident or it'll be hushed up or something, and so I kind of made up that story. And I, there was a... An app I downloaded, oh, what's it called now? Uh, oh, I've forgotten what it's called. But it allows what, you to what if I asked the Gherkin in the jail? Would that remember? <laughs> oh, no, no. It is called Mutable Deception, an editable newspaper available on DriveThruRPG. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes anyway. Yeah, yeah it's a, a thing that gives you like a facsimile of a newspaper yeah. with articles around the side and it gives you a blank box that you could type in that article. Uh, and you can write everything to make it get, and it comes in the font that would have been available then it was oh, only a cheap app it was well, something from drive through RPG and it was, and it was brilliant yeah. so for five dollars or whatever it was 
I did the last few handouts was used using that to make it look like authentic newspaper clippings. Yeah. So yeah, I'll put a link to that in the in the show notes as I say. So when we started this campaign, you said this is a poor man's masks and airflare. Do you still think that? Uh, I do. Yeah, because. It was only something like five quid or something at the time. I think it was about yeah. 10, 20 quid. Uh, but no, it's it's obviously got a lot of similarities. It's, it even follows some of the locations. And uh, what it it's like have... a water, I don't know, it's like a watered down. Whereas you go to London in Masterleth, there's like four sections. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, but there's not London in this, it's just the one scenario. You go to Transylvania, just the one scenario. You go to Egypt, it's just the one scenario. Would you go to Egypt, say in Massalath, let's say we've got three or four little elements going on, isn't there? Yeah. You can go, it's, it's, it's like. What, a it, what it did share with uh, Massalathotep is those uh, big scenes, didn't it? So, like going to Salerno and, um, uh, you know, like when we saw the ritual on the um, seashore mm. and that, those kind of things. And I suppose that's the thing with um, this old school thing, and this is what I've realised over these past two years of playing it is that it's very much a pulp adventure isn't it yeah. it's not it, the horror yeah. is not it's not it's not a horror thing in, implicitly it's not a horror mystery no. it's more of a gun, it's designed like adventure. a it is designed like a dungeons and dragons adventure and yeah. that's that's maybe selling it a bit short it's better than that but it's as though you've got to combat everything at the end but you don't have to do as we know now you can leave it you can back off because the ultimate aim of this campaign is to get to the end, yeah. to find, unravel the mystery, not kill the monsters that are there at the end. Like you're always tempted to tackle them, but you don't have to do that. No. You can back off. But I'll leave that up to the players if they want to do that. And uh, towards the end, you converted it to 7th edition. So yeah. Was that easy? Very easy, really. I mean, you don't, you don't really have to change much. For those who are running 7th edition now and want to pick it up and run it, you could do it. Basically straight off, I, you just have to multiply all the stats. Yeah, as a player, it felt a lot different because that pulpy feel seemed to be increased. Because did you, you find it more? But yeah, see, I weren't sure how it, how it went. Yeah, because I mean, I'm not a uh, big heavy rules reader. I kind of try and familiarise myself as best I can, but I don't try yeah. and stick to them. And I felt as was. I didn't know what rules I were using at some time. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember whether this is the fifth or the seventh or whatever, cause, which yeah. is what we did before. But uh, uh, th- there's a few areas that you can, like the beast at the end, the strength is 200. So you've got to multiply everything by five. So yeah. You've got this beast with a strength of a thousand, and you can't cast a spell, the barrier of Natchitith, to stop this bloody beast and you think what let's talk about mega mathematics yeah yeah you got to kind of what is it 10d10 or something we had to know it was more than that wasn't it? yeah it was yeah we ended up doing it on the, an d10 app. Yeah. <laughs> god knows whether that were right yeah. you know <laughs> it was good fun though <laughs> so what would you like to do next when it comes to call of cthulhu because really call of cthulhu is your game isn't it it's the game that you well i mean it's something that I, kind of, I ran more then back in the day didn't i yeah uh, I don't like to the thought that I'm hogging the game. Uh, I'm not suggesting that. I'm there's so <laughs> there's so many stuff that you, that I could do. I'd I'd like to run. Uh, if you had to do one next, and and you held me to it now, I think I'd like to do a a pulp Cthulhu, but using an actual Cthulhu campaign, which is the Shadows of Atlantis, ah, right. which is set before, just before the Second World War. So it's got Nazis in. It's very very Indiana Jones. 
it's a it's a good campaign, uh, but it's it suffers from bloat because yeah. it's got masses and masses of stuff that you could just pick up. Like say this, where I was doing a chapter on Peru, you'd uh, flip through Wikipedia and you think, oh, okay, I know a little bit about Peru now. Get yeah. some pan pipes on and you're away. <laughs> Whereas the Shadows of Atlantis gives you like twenty odd pages of Peruvian history from the dawn of time. Yeah. You know, and you, th you don't need that in no, in no. these. It's too much. It's, only, it's, it's only, interesting, but if you need to find stuff at the table, you can find it, can you? Well, and, you, can, and, you can in the fungi. You can find that's it's laid out really well. Yeah. It's small, you can find. It's only it's only relevant if it's relevant at the table, isn't that's it? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Anything else is just extra. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, it's good to come back. It's gone great. And you've done a good job with this metal shed. That's uh, it. It's me go resistant. <laughs> well, I'll leave you with your uh, gherkin and a sandwich. Uh, that's the wife. Don't insult the wife. <laughs> See you later, Eddie. See you later. Games Master Screen on location. Hello, Blaney. Hello, Dirk. Well, we've left uh, Dirk Towers and we're going to record this bit on location. We're at the... Uh, Lassa Gowrie in uh, the greatest city in the world, Manchester, mm -hmm. and uh, we're on a jolly boys outing. We are. A JBO, as we yes. call them. Uh, we're about to go and see Still Marillion, a uh, tribute act to Marillion. Because back in the day, uh, prog rock and uh, role playing went together like. They did, they went hand in hand. Hand in yeah. hand. Rick Wakeman in a pointy hat. Yeah, fish. Role playing game, fish. How many of our characters? How many of my characters were based on uh, fish from Marillion? Yes, there were so many of them. You're an older character for Twilight Two Thousand, didn't you? Yeah. Based on a pacifist Scottish character, yes. based on fish. Yeah, with a uh, yeah. with a white feather. Yeah, but should it, we should stress perhaps that um, when we say we're going watching the Marillion tribute act, it's only Marillion as far as clutching at straws. Yes, it does. Beyond that, they're dead to us. Yes. What's fish left? That's it. We have nothing. We'd have nothing to do with them. That's right. <laughs> I should have a refined band. We have nothing yeah. to do with them. So if, if you're in the UK and you like Marillion, look out for Still Marillion because they're really good. They are very good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I don't know it's a great name for a tribute. I like Still Marillion. What else would you come up with? Aren't they? No, they come up with much. It's not a great tribute. No. No. I, I'm looking forward to one day there being a, a Kaylee Kaylee band. Kaylee, Kaylee. So, you know, like a. And I. Playing Fugazi on a fiddle. I think it could work. Well, you can go watch that one on your own. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, we're on a Jolly Boys outing, and we thought that we'd come to the comfort of uh, Lassagari. We're two pints in, so we'll just warn you, warn you now. Warn you now. It's yeah. maybe may, may even an improvement in quality. Or a deterioration. Or a deterioration. <laughs> I suspect the latter. And we're talking about fungi from your from yes. It's easy to say when you've it's had two pints. Fungi from your Cthulhu after two pints. <laughs> we can't pronounce it sober. <laughs> Never mind after two pints. So fungi from Yugoth, we've just finished that campaign, mm. and so we're going to talk about it. So this is a Games Master screen, but I haven't brought a Games Master screen with me. I'm going to have to be exposed. Yes. In the middle. In of, the pub. In the pub. Yeah. Last time you did that, I got thrown out. <laughs> So we're going to go through this, and we've got, we've got on this side. I've got a table, mm. which I'm going to roll some imaginary dice. I don't know why they dice with me. That's all right. So here we go. Let's go. And first of all, I want to talk about set pieces. So, Lady, what was your favourite set piece from? Uh, oh, well, 
there were several set pieces, weren't there? Um, Egypt was good. The mummies, the mummies tomb in Egypt. Um, Baron Hartman's castle. Yeah, I enjoyed that one. So, oh, it's, so yeah, Baron Hartman's castle was good. Yeah, just kind of crept in there, didn't we? In it, true Cthulhu style, we found the haunted castle. It's an interesting campaign, isn't it? Because it seems to be composed of a series mm. of linked adventures, much yeah. more than much more than say Masks and Nyarlathotep, because yeah. it it's much more um, separate scenarios linked together with this common overarching theme. Yeah, and you were like going from one place to another. Yeah, it didn't feel quite as fluid as uh, Masks and Nyarlathotep. We have to do no. things in a certain order, and, don't we? Yeah, and, it, and it has, it's got more of a pulpy feel to it, hasn't it, as well? Massive and Arthur did to some extent, but Fungi from Yugothad. I mean, it's, again, the mummy's, the mummy's two bit is very pulpy, isn't it? When yeah. you go in, in there and, you know, the mummy comes alive and attacks you. That, that's very kind of old skill, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. They, they, they have that feel to it, you know. Massive yeah. and Arthur a bit pulpy as well. Yeah. You know? But I do, I do think it is a series of um, set pieces that mm. are strung together with this story. Um, the, the the one that I remember is the um, Solanos, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Where, where you yeah. go to this library. In space. In space, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's my character went there, didn't you? Yeah. Is it Isabel Dawson? Yeah. 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 Well, quite, I'm not... quite difficult to pull off, though, aren't they, those Yeah. I mean, that's what struck me about... Um, that it's a difficult thing to pull off, isn't it? Because you're going from 1920s America, 1920s Europe, to a library in outer space. And I remember she met she met a character, uh, some kind of alien chap, riding a giant beetle or something, wasn't it? Yeah. That, yeah. that all went on, and it, it is it is a difficult thing to um, to pull off. I mean, I think Eddie was running it, and he did he did a, he did a good job. I mean, credit he did a good job of it, but. I remember when he was running it, thinking, "I'm glad I'm not running this. I'm glad I'm just the player and not the games master." Because it's quite a difficult thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, it comes with that sense of going from a real-world setting, albeit a real world with the threat of tentacled monsters. But that, that said, still a real world. You know, we were in—I think we were in Baron Hartman's castle, weren't we? Yeah. We yeah. found some space mead, um, which I've been—I've had two pints of that already. Let's <laughs> have a bit more. Um, we found the space mead and we travelled into space. Yeah, yeah. And it's that leap, isn't it, in Cthulhu of the real world to nothing like the real world. You're, you're travelling through space and you go into some weird cosmic library and meet an alien who, who rides a giant beetle. Very difficult to put that across in a convincing way, I think. Yeah. If, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's, just, it's a difficult game to run, isn't it? Yeah. I have to say though, I mean, this is the first time that I played Call of Cthulhu alongside you mm. um, since back in the day. Yeah. I think even back in the day, we didn't play it together that much. Yeah. We played in a few ways because we, of course, we played. Uh, well, it was either you running it for me and Eddie, yeah. or Eddie running it for me and you. But it was predominantly you used to predominantly run it. Yeah. I've not, I've not really run much Cthulhu at all. No, no. What I noticed uh, playing it, um, and it, it, I suppose this is the thing, isn't it, that. We, we've been together for a long, long time, mm. and during this campaign, I think I learned a lot about you as a player, mm. more than I probably have done when we played alongside each other yeah. in uh, RuneQuest. 
and I think there's particular there's a particular set piece where we were I think we we're in Mexico and we found this base, it's this this underground yeah. lair of the Migo, the kind of this alien Migo. Mago, amigo. amigo. You say amigo, I say mago. Mexico, amigo. Amigo, yeah. Amigo. It is amigo. Amigo. We saw amigo. <laughs> and we went into the into this lair and for a moment our characters felt discombobulated because mm. yeah. at the same time we were looking at ourselves. We were looking at this kind of strange army of creatures crawling on top of each other yeah watching ourselves looking at that from the moon yeah 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 yeah, disc, disc, yeah. and we felt like out of joint things mm. were out of joint yeah. however in that scene as, as eddie was describing it all i could see in your eyes was <laughs> shall we use dynamite yes by default setting <laughs> How much dynamite have we got? Have we got enough to blow it up? But I, what I, what I realised at that point was, for you, mm. this was a scene that you wanted to fix. Yes. Put right. Yes. Well, I think you're right, and I think this is always one of the things I've struggled with with Cthulhu all throughout the time we've played it, in that sometimes you don't quite know what to do. And, and maybe... Maybe it's something to do with H.P. Lovecraft. You know, he's kind of writing. I'm not. Uh, it's okay, but I'm not. I'm not a huge H.P. Lovecraft fan. Hmm. Maybe it's something to do with that. In that, you know, if you're a huge H.P. Lovecraft fan and you find yourself in a Mygo, a Mygo kind of colony, that that's a big deal. You know, in the same way that as a Moorcock fan, finding myself in uh, the Young Kingdoms is a thrill for me. Maybe it's something to do with that. But I think it has more to do with that sense of, at times, you can't do anything about things. But for me, a good role-playing game has that sense of agency, where as a player, you can fix stuff, you can do stuff. So there's something creating a threat or creating a problem, and as a role-player, your character goes in and has a crack at fixing it. That's what they do. They may, they may, they may fail in that, but they do something about it. But, but it, I, I think that's that's so different. I think that's what I think that's what I learned about mm. yeah. us as players yeah. because um, to do that within uh, Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu, is quite difficult. Yes, and, and yeah. even if we were we were playing it quite pulpy, weren't we? We were yeah. playing it yeah. so that you know, Eddie's always of the view. I mean, our final scene was us kind of punching the lights out of cultists and then on a zeppelin yes. and blowing it up yes and that, it was and, and Eddie, Eddie runs it like that and that's good I like that oh, that's a good thing yeah yeah. but, but that scene that particular scene you see I think I felt that that was a truly mm. Lovecraftian scene yeah yeah. It's, it reminds me of the uh, it reminds me of the poem the the, um, yeah. the, the sonic sequence that it's based on mm. the fungi from Yugoth and there's a moment uh I saw a body. I'm pretending that I know this off the top of my head, but I'm actually reading it. Yeah. But we'll cut this bit out where I'm saying explain yeah. it. I saw a body spread on that dark stone. I knew that those things that feasted were not men. I knew this strange grey world was not my own. 
but Yugurth's passed the starry voids. And then the body shrieked, within me gave a dead cry, <laughs> and all too late I knew that it was I. Mm. And it's that feeling that simultaneously being inside but outside your body and feeling that there's this great big cosmic horror. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But you, you, didn't, you didn't feel that. You wanted to blow it all up. I didn't want to blow it up. I just thought, how are we supposed to fix this? Yeah, but I didn't, you know? what, what, isn't the point of that scene to make you feel that we are yes, I, insignificant? I see, We're I see insignificant. Your, I, I see that, but... And, that's We're, fair enough as far as it goes, but sometimes I feel there's a bit too much of that in Call of Cthulhu. There's a bit too much of it, because it's not the only scene where there's things like that. There's other things that happen where you think, I can't really do much about it. And that I find that I do find that as a player a little bit frustrating. What I want yeah. to do is, you know, save the person who's been sacrificed, you know. Or intervene. Or intervene in some way, because for me that seems more heroic or more what a role-playing game is all about. You know, the fun of a role-playing game is not to sit on the sidelines and watch cosmic yeah. horror. It's to intervene and go, right, let's sort this, let's do something about it, let's stop it. And I think, I think Cthulhu, I, I mean, I can see why. It's a very, it, it, let's not, let's not be mistaken, it, it's a very important role-playing game. Because when it emerged... It set in place different, some different concepts. So it, it did that. We've talked about this many times before, I think. It made that shift between being a character that goes up the levels, kills things, goes up the levels, gets better, gets more powerful, you know, becomes yeah, yeah. a rune lord, becomes a 12th level wizard, becomes this, becomes that. It, it moved more in the direction of your character's kind of doomed. It's more about playing a role, accepting that fact playing a role in a world where you accept that you're doomed, you're going to go mad, you're going to get shredded by some monster. And all those things are quite important things that fed into role-playing and changed role-playing. So I'm not taking away any of its significance in that sense. But just sometimes as a player, I do find it, it is, is a taste thing, isn't it? I find it frustrating yeah. because my gut instinct is to go, right, okay, this person, over there, there's a scene, there's a scene in Fungi from Yogurt, isn't there, where... Uh, the cultists drag some woman out of a car and they're going to sacrifice her and they, su sacrifice her and they summon some monster out to see her. Yeah, yeah. And my instinct all the time as a player is intervene. Save, yeah, yeah. save the woman. They're going to murder an innocent person. And I think all the time save I was them. saying, no. But, but all the time, but you're right. You, you were saying, no, we can't, we can't do this. And Eddie was hinting very heavily to me, don't do it, you can't do it. Yeah. And you're both right, but that is what I find slightly frustrating about Cthulhu yeah, yeah. times. That sense of, I, I can't do anything about it, I'm just an observer. Yeah. Sometimes it descends into RPG in a capacity of an observer. Yeah. Whereas for me, good RPG is being a participant for the agency. Yeah. You can do something about it. And that, that's what sort of frustrates me. The difficulty I have um, with that is that if you accept what you are saying yeah and that you know the idea of this is so that you can make a difference and things yeah and play in that pulpy style where you know the characters have a bit more power yeah um, the difficulty with that is that does it not descend into just being a dungeon crawl 
with uh, it tentacle does, monsters. It does, but then I think Cthulhu does anyway at times. Yeah, because that, that that scene where you know all the things that you picked yeah. out as bits that you liked, like Hoffman's castle and the uh, yeah. Egyptian uh, yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah. Really, it was just like dungeon crawls, wasn't it? Yeah, but then I think Cthulhu can be like that. I think it can be like that. I think sometimes it's dressed up as it's not like a dungeon crawl, but but it can be really just a dungeon crawl. You're going to die in. <laughs> That's part of the problem. But I don't know. It's a bit like when we played um, Knights Black Agents. There was a, there's a phrase in Knights Black Agents where they say something about. You might be able to correct me on this, but it's something on the lines of you know, you you are. You can win or something. It says you can win. Yeah, this is a this is where you can win. You can yeah, win. Yeah. Now I know role playing games are not about winning. They are about winning. <laughs> They're not about winning. But that that for me is a subtle subtle distinction. Knights Black Agents, you are a secret agent fighting vampires, fighting powerful creatures, more powerful than you. But you can win. You can defeat them. In Cthulhu, there's a definite sense that you can't. Yeah, that you won't. But that to me, isn't that is a taste thing, perhaps. It is. A, it is a taste thing because isn't that part of the thrill, the kind of cosmic horror? Like when you were fa- when we were faced. Well, with I that. don't know. We're not not sure it is. I think it's just losing hit points on a character sheet. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a thrill. Yeah. Right in if you find that a thrill. I've lost. No, lost that, all my hit points and all my sanity. What a thrill! But is that a thrill of? Uh, it's the horror. It can be, yeah. It's yeah. the horror of realizing the insignificance uh, in the middle of all this. That, maybe, that, that, maybe if I played it with a good games master, it might be different. I, I, <laughs> that's terrible <laughs> to say. <laughs> I, but I can see, I can see that, I can see it. But what I can, what I can see to you, what I can see to you is that I do think having played back to back, Master Nerfletech, which I games mastered, mm. and uh, Fungi from uh, Yoga, uh, Eddie games mastered, I think we're probably uh, suffering from a bit of campaign fatigue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I do accept that. You know, one of my uh, characters that I had in there, quite a long term character, was o- Olive Kingsburg. Mm. Part of the thing of role-playing isn't it developing a character yes and um she was a good character because even when we went through various horrific things for one reason or another <laughs> yeah. she never saw any of it no she didn't she was um she was the um uh, the daughter of a soap magnate so she had lots of money and so she would bankroll in all these trims that people because she wanted to see the occult she wanted yeah. to see yeah. what was going she was studying it she had a fascination with uh, the horrors and believed that there was something beyond yeah. and she heard of this brotherhood and she was fascinated by it in a kind of um, literary way she yeah. wanted to turn it into some kind of uh, parlour story that she could tell yeah. to her friends and uh, she never saw any of it no. she never saw any of it until we went to Egypt and she was eaten by a monster mm. yeah. and <laughs> something was lost <laughs> <She did. laughs> something was lost in that moment mm. Because I had an investment in that character. Yes, and I think that that's true. That that can be a problem with it. In that when when a character dies in a role playing game, there's nothing wrong with a character dying in a heroic way, or almost like a, a knowing a knowing way that you know this is a crunch moment. This is it. You know, you, 
like you might go down here but that's okay it's worth it you're defending the village you're doing this you're doing that but in Cthulhu you can die quite randomly yeah, as yeah. your character did where suddenly out of the blue wallet you're dead oh, right, okay. yeah head bitten off yeah head bitten off which in, if it was a horror movie it would be good but it's not a horror movie is it it's a role playing game and your investment in that character you feel a little bit oh, right, okay. that's a bit a little bit awkward isn't it that you've yeah, been yeah. bumped off out of the blue it only, only because we have to continue the story so yeah, if, yeah, yeah. if that yeah. happened within a one shot or whether it was yeah. you know a character that I haven't spent a lot of time yeah. with you could say there was some glory in the deck yeah. but it's because of the campaign and this need yeah, for you're right. the campaign, continuity yeah. and I think, I think that's true actually you, you're right there that Cthulhu one shot and Cthulhu campaign are actually quite different things but perhaps yeah. more different than one shot stroke campaigns in other games which are probably very similar experiences but Cthulhu can, can be very different and in some ways it lends itself to a one shot doesn't it yeah. The, the idea, if you're playing a one shot, you think, fuck, oh, might I die, might I die, might I get killed, fair enough. And it lends itself to that Cthulhu, whereas campaigns are trickier, aren't they? To yeah. Maintain. I think what we've done is because we had a nostalgia for those globe trotting campaigns back in the day, yeah. where you know, you're going to different places around the world mm. combating this evil that was unearthing, these yeah. strange events that were happening. We wanted to replicate that, mm. and yeah. really, it's just given us one flavour of Call of Cthulhu. When there are lots of different flavours, isn't there? You, you, it's yeah, different to... ways of approaching it. That, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can approach it in different ways. And I think that's where, that's where I can see, uh, perhaps um, campaign fatigue is wrong. But I did, I did feel that playing th- this with you, um, that much of the time you were kind of exasperated yeah I think I think you're right to some extent I mean I did enjoy it I didn't not enjoy it it's a role playing game I like role playing games so I enjoyed it but I do think it's it can be a bit exasperating from that perspective that you you do feel like you're paralysed you can't do anything your sense of agency is taken away and, and in a role-playing game, agency is what it's all about, because that's the whole essence of it in some senses, the relationship between game master and player is, is agency, isn't it? So even at its most basic level, game master says you come to a door, you decide whether you want to open it. Yeah. If game master says you come to a door, but you can't open it, that's what Cthulhu feels like sometimes. You yeah. come to a door, but you're not allowed to open it, and that can be frustrating. So ha- halfway through this campaign, so when we left down Peru and went to San Francisco, Eddie retrofitted it with 7th edition rules, and next time mm. we're going to look yeah. a bit more detail of 7th edition rules. But I do think that it injected more of what you yeah. like. Yes, it does. It does. Because I know we're going to talk about this later, but things like burning your luck, and re-rolling stuff gives you a sense of I have a little bit more power might be the wrong word but I have a little bit more of a chance more of an ability exactly you've got a bit of a chance you've got luck rolls you've got things that I know you've got luck rolls in um, 
in original Cthulhu, but it, but it plays slightly differently in seventh edition, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, the idea of burning luck, the idea of re-rolling, but if you don't do it, there's a there's more of a consequence. I th- I think the uh, finale that we talked about in the fight within the Zeppelin was partly down to the yes. fact that we felt more liberated by yes. the fact that we had I think a, I, a bit more power yeah. to yeah. do it. I think that's true. I think seventh edition does give you that as a player. It gives you a sense of perhaps not that you can win, but you can you can do more. Yeah, We've got more because it a bit we, more elbow room. We should add that it wasn't the pulp rules, but no, no, no. it did feel more pulpy yeah. even without the additional yes, pulp powers. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, fun game from you with another great campaign yeah. that we'll return to. What would you like to do next with Call of Cthulhu? If I said to you, right, blithe it, we're going to have a game of Call of Cthulhu. Well, what? you know, you you asked that question, but you know what I'd like to do. No, I'm, I'm very interested in Pulp Cthulhu. Pulp Cthulhu. Yeah. Pulp Cthulhu. Because I do think... You see, this is the, this is the thing. Going back to the, uh, the library in space, that transition is difficult with Cthulhu as it stands now because it all jars slightly. But I think Pulp Cthulhu would feel, it would feel a bit different, wouldn't it? It would feel more... I don't know. I might be wrong. Time will tell, won't it? But it feels as though... That kind of idea might be more palatable in a pulpy setting. Yeah. Somehow it would work better. I don't know. Yeah. Might be wrong. Punching a mango in the face, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, go, that's it, isn't it? Going. Uh, that, that's exactly it, isn't it? Going to that mango colony in um, the original Cthulhu, you felt slightly passive, but pulp Cthulhu, there's a sense where maybe I will get to blow it up with dynamite. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> If I get to blow it up with dynamite, that's a good session of role playing, as far as I'm concerned. Well, <laughs> it's getting late for scribbling and scratching on the paper, yes. and something's going to give under this pressure, and the cracks are already beginning to show. <laughs> We've got to go and see Marillion. And I'm still Marillion. And I need some more space meat. <laughs> get me another part of space meat. All right, and go and let's put this. Cheers, Cheers. See you later. See you later. There isn't another bit. Having complained about campaign fatigue and wanted to explore different flavours of the game rather than globe-trotting pulpy adventures, in January 2018 I'll be starting an online campaign of The Two-Headed Serpent. That's that's how addictions work, isn't it? At this recently released adventure, written by Scott Dorwood, Paul Fricker and Matt Sanderson, who many of you will know as the host of the consistently excellent Good Friends of Jackson Alliance podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. It's a cracking campaign using the 7th edition Pulp Cthulhu rules. I'm currently recruiting Games Master so we can run a few sessions concurrently. More information will be available to patrons soon. Speaking of Patreon, we've had many new members of the Grog Squad who joined us in September. The Patreon campaign can be found in the links to the show notes. The podcast will always be free to listen to, but the tips we gratefully receive encourage us to do other activities such as the Grogzine, which will be available by PDF in December 2017, and Grogmeet, which will be taking a place next month in Manchester. So, 
This is a Patreon thanks at $1. Julio Pasta. Dylan Horrocks, who's also upped his uh, pledge as well. He's a comic artist from New Zealand. He's got some great work if you seek it out. Juho Rutila. Samdai Hudi, who's a local person who we met last uh, year and uh, he's a, always been a champion of the Grognard Files, so it's great to have him on board. Simon Lyle, Evan Edwards, Dylan Ross and Ray Otis. Welcome to you all. Welcome to the Grog Squad. Pull up a poof and stay a while. You're very welcome. At three and a half dollar level, we have Peter Hoskin, Filthy Monkey, Mikhail Sedlakio, Andrew Seaton, who's increased his bid, Andrew Stimpson, and Michael Watson. Thank you very much. You virtually have an armchair, a poof, and a hobnob. Uh, great to have you on board. Thank you very much. When it comes to the $5 backers, I like to award people who back at this level a gift from a table relevant to the subject under discussion. Call of Cthulhu is mercifully free of tables, so I've decided to create my own. The Marillion Randomizer. To dedicate a song to these premium backers. First up, I've got Andy Acton. Okay, let's roll that. It's 63. Forgotten Sons. Armalite. Streetlights. Night Sights. Searching the roofs for a sniper. A viper. A fighter. Next up is David Matheson. And he's got 65. Script for a jester's tear. Losing on the swings, losing on the roundabouts. Next up is uh, Ralph Plowman. Thanks for the iTunes reviewers too. And he's got 85 Jigsaw. Dream coins for the fountain or to cover your eyes. Okay, and uh, next up is uh, Newt Newport, the OSR magician. And he's got... He's got 14, and that's the Heart of Lothian. The rooting, tooting cowboys. Lucky little ladies in the watering holes. They'll score the Friday night goals. And uh, next up, Nick Lockwood. My goodness, he's got 44. That's Fugazi. Sheafed within a Walkman, aborting pregnant conversation. Mark Kitchen gets, he's got 47, which is assassing. Listen as the syllables of slaughter cut with calm precision. And finally, last not least, Hobgoblin Orange, who's contributed to previous episodes. He gets 24, White Russian. You can shut your eyes. You can hide it away. It's going to come back another day. There you go. Make up a mixtape. Thanks for your support. Next time, there's a second part has more from Mike Mason as he faces the Games Master screen. At Daily Dwarf returns to provide some analysis of the scenarios that appeared in White Dwarf back in the day. 
Judge Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, will be looking at the 7th edition in more detail. I didn't sound too bitter about Olive Kinnisberg getting her head bitten off by a monster, did I? I, I only mentioned it twice. Until then, adios amigos, amigos. <laughs>